To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? I got a brand new Eastman's Elevated podcast for you. So this week I have back on Craig Temple. Um, I really enjoyed our first conversation we had on Eastman's Elevated, and and our second one was just as good. I just um, I touch bases with him. He's got an affiliation with Eastman's. He does some writing for us, and so I just touch bases with him. I've been following his social media and and just checked in on him and his season and some of the adventures he had, and he just had some great stories. And so I wanted to get him back on to, to share some of his successes and some of his failures, and then he's just got such good insight into Western hunting. So he's my Canadian friend up there. He's got a few terms that uh, you got to get a handle on, like getting hooped. That's a great one. I said it again during this podcast, but getting hooped is like uh, getting messed up. Um, but it's just funny how we all have different sayings from the different different places we come from, you know, whether it's in the United States or Canada, but he's just a great guy. He's, he's got great ethics and, and great decision-making and, and he just loved bow hunting with, with every fiber in his soul. So a uh, fun conversation with Craig Temple. You guys are going to enjoy it. Uh, sponsor for today's show is Sitka. Um, me and Craig talk about Sitka a little bit in the podcast. It comes up and so we talk about their new pattern and, and how that's doing for us and, and, uh, just some of the technical fit of their clothing, but they really have revolutionized the, the hunting market with their technical mountaineering gear. Uh, I'm wearing it almost exclusively now. I, I just, I love their next to skin. I love their insulating layers. I love their shells and, and they just, they improve the fit and they improve the design and they improve their fabrics. And so every year they're just evolving this clothing to be as good as it can be. And it, and it really is a huge key to my success, being comfortable in the mountains and, and being able to, to push to my limits and uh, not have to worry about dying from hypothermia or uh, you know getting wet or, or whatever the case is. But uh, their hunting clothing is just absolutely next level. I can't say enough good things about the company Asitka. So thanks to those guys for sponsoring the podcast um over there at eastman's well i just got done with that trip over there and that uh, christmas party recorded some really good podcasts that i'm going to be releasing to you guys and and uh, so i'm really excited about that um i i couldn't squeeze in absolutely every one i wanted to record so uh i'm gonna touch bases with those guys again over there brandon mason was just getting over a cold and kind of in and out and busy in the office and so um, I want to get him back on the podcast. He had just this awesome Alaska hunting adventure this year on this float trip. And so um, I, I want to kind of talk and break down that some more to get you guys the right information to plan your own do-it-yourself Alaskan hunt. And uh, I got Ike on the podcast, and, and he did one. We did this group one with him and, and Guy and Dan, and it was a great podcast. But I always have fun with Ike, and I love having him on the podcast. He's just such a good time. and. Yeah, he's so lighthearted and, uh, you know, he, he always gets you laughing. And, and uh, so I want to get him back on the podcast 
uh, I was thinking of have him, having him on. He's so knowledgeable about horses and stock and packing, and uh, I'm so not. I'm like half half afraid of, of horses. I mean, I've been on enough horses, but they're just such big, powerful animals with just this little pea brain in there, you know, and the, the minute they snap, I mean, and accidents can happen really quick with those things, and so I tend to stay away from them and do mostly backpack hunting, but I mean, they're made for elk hunting and getting elk out of the mountains, and, and uh, I know hiring a packer is a good option but but also ike has some really good insight into packing and how to keep safe and even how to ride those things so you don't get sore and uh so i want to get him back on the podcast with that as well as he's really knowledgeable about uh, backcountry elk hunting there in wyoming and the mule deer hunts he does and so i'm going to try to line up that with those guys um but we're just plugging away through the christmas season Make sure to be on the lookout for the new MRS section uh, in the Eastman's Magazine. Um, it comes out here and, and just gets us all ready for putting in our applications in different states. And there's just so much knowledge there. And it's only to subscribers of the Eastman's Hunting Journal and Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. But they just break down every state and they give you the... the, the timing of when you have to put in your deadline, a date of when you have to put in by... Um, they get, they kind of explain every state and how they handle the draw process and whether it's squaring the points or bonus point or, you know, whatever the system is, they kind of explain it to, to you so you can understand it. And then they just break down all the quality units and they break it down for rifle, muzzleloader and bow. But I know me being a bow only guy, I'm always looking at the rifle tags and what's the most sought after rifle tags and rifle dates. And, you know, I can gain a lot of information from that as well. So I just love that. MRS section and the guys do such a good job at it. Um, you can also there's a few MRS books where they compile all the information from last year. I think we still have a few available, um, but if you can't find the the, the book to buy, um, you can also get access to it uh, through a, a digital copy that you can get from our website at eastmans.com. Um, but, but that's it. Uh, going to get some recordings from those guys and, uh, keep plugging away here. I also got to get Scott Reekers back on here. He's my backpacking guy. And, um, I want to kind of break down backpacking and weights and days. And, um, there's a lot of information there. And so I want to get Scott back on for that. So a couple more podcasts planned and, and, uh, with that, I'm going to get down to Arizona with my buddy Dan. Um, we're going to record some podcasts down there, you know, as we're hunting coups. And I'm going to try to do some some live hunt updates, too, um, through the Instagram story. Uh, so make sure to be on the lookout for that. But really excited uh, about getting down there and doing some desert hunting, living like a desert rat. I, I look down at the forecast down there, and it's 60, 70 degrees. And uh, we can't leave until Monday the 1st. Um, but then I'm good to go till like the 10th or 11th or so. And then my wife flies out the 12th. So I got to be back for that. But, um, yeah, I got to cut the legs loose and go march through that, that desert wilderness and desert backcountry and look for those coups and try to get it done and, and, uh, try to show Dan a good experience too. It's his first time down there. And so, um, he, he always makes for a really good hunting partner. So we ought to have a great time. And like I say, we're going to try to record at night a little bit. I got to set up for my truck and, and, uh, record some good information there and just keep getting you guys good content um i just want to keep growing this eastman's elevated and and uh keep doing the best job i can so um thanks for all the support guys let's get this podcast rolling so it's me and craig temple uh talking over a season and recapping some good info in it and uh eastman's elevated here we go (whistles) 
I'm live here with Craig Temple. Uh, Craig, thanks for being on Eastman's Elevated again. Hey, buddy. Thanks for inviting me. Um, you've been busy. Uh, I wanted to congratulate you on your season. Um, I saw a heck of a mule deer that you were able to harvest. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a long season. It was a tough season, but uh, that mule deer definitely made it all worthwhile. Yeah, you've been working hard. I've seen lately uh, you've been sitting in the stand for just hours upon hours trying to catch up with the whitetail. Yeah, I don't even really want to talk about whitetails. They kind of have my number this year. Um, I put in a lot of time in the tree stand. My wife will attest to that, and she's uh, she's happy season's done, and I'm uh, I'm at the stage where I'm kind of regrouping for next year, trying to figure out where things went wrong, how I didn't uh, how I didn't kill a deer that I thought was a slam dunk, but uh, it is what it is. Like I've uh, said before, if it was if it was easy and everybody had big whitetails on their walls, there wouldn't be such a such a desire to get out there and try to outsmart another one. Yeah, those uh, big, heavy, older whitetails, they just get so smart in, in like, small spaces. Um, and not that they live in small spaces. I know they travel around, but it just seems like within a few lots just outside of town, a buck can survive, and, and everybody's after him and have him survive to when he's five, six, seven, you know, and bladed and heavy. Um, they just have a knack for, for um, keeping you on your toes. And I think we were talking earlier, and you were saying that you had over 15 sits for the buck you were after this year yeah it was I, I had a wide white tail he's i don't know probably about 24 inches inside spread and uh pretty old deer roman nose cool looking deer and lots of mass and he was sort of bladed up on his g2s and he yeah i, I mean i had like 20 i think i had 20 plus pictures of him throughout the summer into fall and i thought yeah if i if I just put my time in in November and I just commit my whole whitetail time to him, I'll, I'll kill him for sure. So I sat and I sat and I sat and I sat. I sat 15 sits. It was a small bush, but I sat 15 sits waiting for that one deer. And honestly, as embarrassing as it is, I never even saw a single deer um, from that tree stand in those 15 sits. So I thought I was wasting my time. So I pulled the pin. I got out of there and switched to a different property. And uh, I got a picture of a deer that I'd been after for a couple of years that had showed up back there again. So I sat there for a couple of sits. And, um, uh, yeah, I went back to that small bush, checked the camera. And, yeah, wouldn't you know it, he's been there four days during daylight out of ten days. So if I would have stuck with it, I would have, well, I would have seen him, not necessarily killed him, because those big deer, there are no guarantees. Even if they're in front of you, um, there's no guarantees. But he, he he did come back, and he was in there along with some other bucks. A hot doe came through and brought him back in there, and I wasn't there and ready for him. So I'm kind of kicking myself for, for pulling the pin and jumping ship, but it is what it is. Oh, no. That uh, whitetail game, it's such a chess game, and it seems like um, it's the nature of it that you're – you're almost always second guessing yourself with where you're going to set up and where you're going to sit and then where you should be while you're sitting there. Um, were you set up like in a travel corridor or where those things would they move into there and live? Um, 15 sits without seeing a deer. I think anybody would question where they're sitting. Yeah, no doubt. Like where I was sitting for him, um, it was, I, it's a small bush, but I have three tree stands in there. So it doesn't matter where the wind is going. I can sit a, I can sit one of the stands and it's, there's fields all around it. So it's kind of tough. It's kind of tough. It's not just one chunk of bush with one field and they travel the same way out to the same field. So they've got their pick of three, three fields surrounding it. So it's like, well, which way do they want to go each night? Um, sometimes I'd, I'd sit in one stand and, 
and uh, I'd get a picture of a bunch of does going by another stand or a small buck or a medium buck going by another stand. And, and yeah, I don't know. They, they just, they move around in there and they're not stupid. I, I think lots of the times when I or other hunters, when we set up and we think, okay, this is good. The wind is in my favor. Um, the wind might be in your favor, but the buck knows it's not in his favor. And when he knows it's not in his favor, he's not heading that direction out to that field. He's going to go to the, a different different corner of the field, different area where the wind is is in his favor. And that's how they get big. They they're not stupid, right? I I don't know. You don't see a big deer very often heading with the uh, with the wind not in their face. So you're almost sitting in the wrong spot every night because you're sitting with the wind in your favor, and he's always traveling with the wind in his favor, and so then he never right. walks by your stand. Pretty much. And you can't, I mean, you can't, you can sit in the stand where you think he's going to come, but if the wind is not in favor, um, then he comes and I've screwed up so many times in, in my earlier years where it's like, okay, well, the wind doesn't really matter that much, but this is a good tree stand. So you, you go sit in that tree stand and sure enough, here comes a deer and at about 150, 200 yards away, he stops and puts his nose up in the air and turn tails and he's gone and you'll never see him again. Sometimes they just turn nocturnal. It only takes once, right? So, yeah, you, you, you can't really, it's a lot of things have to go right in order to kill a big deer. Boy, and you just can't cheat the wind and whether it's in a whitetail stand and all my experiences is, is Western hunting. This year I hunted whitetails a, a little bit and I hunted them a little bit around Montana, but mostly spot and stock. I haven't done the, the sits that you have, but I, I just know cheating the wind, you just hardly ever get away from away with it. You know, like all. I'll see the the uh, nice muley buck and he's bedded in the perfect spot where all you got to do is just come right over that rise and you can shoot him from right there and he's in range, but the wind's like you know it's maybe you think oh it, it maybe it'll blow over top of him or thermals are coming up or if you try to cheat that wind it seems like every time you get busted and then you learn and go well I should have known you just can't cheat the wind it's just like you can't get away with going into a setup with the wrong wind you lose almost every time. Absolutely. Yeah. It, like you say, I, I thought it was kind of funny how you're just saying there about uh, trying to cheat the wind. Uh, oh, may, maybe this one will work. Man, this year was so bad for me, for especially for mule deer, trying to learn, um, not learn, but trying to trying to trick the wind and think, ah, maybe this one will work. I don't know how many stocks I tried that it was like, I think I might be able to get away. Yeah, it, it's angling okay, but as soon as the wind drops over the ridge, where like where those muleys are, as soon as it drops over a ridge, um, it blasts a whole different direction down that valley. And the big bucks, they're not stupid. They sit on a certain point. They sit on a certain ridge for a reason. And sometimes they lay down and they'll put their nose in the air and they'll look around and, nope, this isn't right. And they'll get up and they'll move 20 yards. They'll lay down, put the nose up in the air. Okay, this is right. And then they'll relax there and they're they're impossible to get to. You just, I mean, doesn't matter how you go about it. Your wind drops down into that valley and it blows out into the point and they catch your wind and they are gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you almost try to talk yourself into it. Maybe it's quartering Make across up there. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> going to be okay, but... It, uh, it it hardly ever works out. You just can't cheat the wind. And if the wind isn't right, it's not going to work. And you'd almost be better off to come from the approach that he can see you the whole way with the wind right. You know, you'd probably have a better chance at killing him. But that, that doesn't work either. You've got to get all the conditions working in your favor to be able to harvest one of those. But you're right. They, um, 
they they don't uh when they get old like that um they get wise and their instincts get sharp and you know and they didn't survive five six seven years old by making mistakes and and you're right they'll sit in those spots that are perfect where that wind comes over the top and wraps down in there and some of those spots there no there is no way to kill that buck in there you have to wait till evening till he moves off or beds in a different spot or you have a different wind it's just the way it is yeah for sure. Yeah. When they, when they bed in those, some of those areas and you can tell that it's a good spot. Cause it's, I mean, that bed in the edge of a coulee kind of thing, that bed is dug out six feet wide, three feet deep. And they lay, they lay in that pocket cause that's the way the wind just always works. And, uh, yeah, no, they're not, they're definitely not stupid. Big deer are not easy to get with the bow. I love seeing those spots that they've dug out and been using for hundreds of thousands of years using the yeah. same bed and the same drainage and and you know even before they were trying to avoid humans they were avoiding mountain lions and and uh you know uh, uh avoiding predators you know from that same bed catching that same wind but yeah I always think that's wild to look at their beds and where they like to live in there and I always have my toughest my toughest stalks are my toughest places to kill deer on the, the lee wind side, you know, when they're on the back side of the wind and it just wraps over the top of that hill and dives down in there and swirls around. And, and no matter how hard you try, you, you just can't get the wind right on those slopes. And, and I've tried doing, you know, stuff that's, that's out of the ordinary too. Like, um, I was hunting this big buck on the lee wind side and I tried two different approaches in six days, and both days I got busted by the wind when I thought it was going to be okay. I had afternoon thermals, but the way the wind, the dominant wind direction, it would come over top of that hill and then swirl down in there. And then it didn't matter what your directionals were doing, those bucks would catch it. And so I made two failed attempts, and then finally I about killed that buck one day, and I, I saw him in the early morning when I had downhill thermals, and then the directionals hadn't picked up for the day, and I I tried to come below him and I got really close. I was like 45 yards and a two point picked me up up above. And that was my last <laughs> chance at that buck and busted out of there. But I, I felt like I had finally solved the wind puzzle for that little piece of terrain. But by, by that time I had already busted that buck a couple times. And by the time I, I busted the two point and then that buck out of there again, it was all over, you know, but um, yeah, it's, it's always a puzzle to try to figure out, to try to get one right on those big muley bucks. Yeah, hundred percent. This year, I don't know if you noticed anything different this year. Um, I know everywhere that I hunted, it was the wind was so weird. Um, like first week of September, usually it's a, I don't know, the prevailing wind up here is a northwest wind, and where my friend and I were hunting, Pierre and I were hunting, everything was a south wind this year. Everything south or southeast. And when it was hot, it was like, it was hot. It was 37 degrees Celsius down there. And now for you crazy Americans, you guys are like, what's 37 Celsius? So I actually did the conversion before we talked. It was, it's 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so it was, it was that hot down there. Um, and like with the south wind, we couldn't, the only place that those deer would bed in that heat is in the shade and the shade is on a north slope. And they dig out those beds and they're laying on a north slope. But when you got a south wind blowing over onto the north slopes, uh, those deer are basically impossible to kill. Like with the wind, it's this year. I've, we hunted down there for seven days 
and six out of seven days we had a south wind when normally we get a northwest wind um, is probably like five out of seven, maybe even six out of seven days here. So the wind was weird, 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 weird this year. And it was, it was, it was definitely a real challenge. I mean, I'm not making excuses, but it was probably my most challenging year when it, when it comes to wind direction uh, this year, just because of, just because that, and in the early season, that's the only place those deer will, will bed. I mean, if you're hunting mule deer in the early season, um, for anybody out there that might be listening to this podcast later, um, if you're looking all you have to do when it's that hot and it's midday, the only place you have to glass is in the shade. You look under rocks, you look under benches, uh, you look under scrub brush. Those deer in that heat will not be in the in the sun. They'll shrivel up to like raisins. They they just they hide in the shade, and you can save a ton of time glassing. You don't even need to don't even need to glass south face, facing slopes. Just glass those north slo- slopes or east or west and uh, look for shade. If you find shade, that's where the bucks are going to be hiding every time. Oh, you're so right. Um, yeah, that's what that's when it's tough is when you get that lee wind when they got a south wind and you're trying to hunt north slopes. It blows over the top and swirls down in there. Um, and, and you make a great point about glass in that shade, that middle of the day. And those deer, they're allergic to the sunshine. And I've actually watched them mm-hmm. feed hillsides and, and feed in the shade line, you know, above the sun as the sun's coming up on the hillside. You know, they'll, they'll stay out of that sunshine to stay in that shade. And, and then as you watch them throughout the day, you know, they, they keep totally in the shade. And when you see that sunshine start to get on their back or on their head, you just know, you know, this buck's going to move here in a couple minutes and you can almost call it. And as soon as that sun gets on him and he starts getting warm, you'll watch him stand up and he'll reposition in the shade and lay right back down. But they're definitely yeah. looking for those those cool temperatures there when you got that heat and that shade's the best place to be. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny to watch them because they'll, I mean, they'll even, like you said, once they get in the sun, they'll stand up and they'll move six, eight feet over and they'll bed right down again. Um, they just want to be in that shade and they'll work the way all the way around a point or all the way around a, a big rock. They'll just stay in the shaded side all day long. Yeah, they'll they'll cir- cool circle watch. all the way around mm-hmm. the feature, all the way around the rock, you know, yeah. almost 180 degrees to keep in that shade all day long. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's kind of funny because the bigger bucks, they get the best beds too, right? So you'll see a younger buck will be in the good bed and the big buck uh, turns into the sun. I was watching one big buck gets in the sun. He stands up, moves over. He pokes the little buck. Little buck stands up and he steals his bed and screw you, buddy. Go find your own bed. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They all have attitudes, don't they? Those big yeah. bucks, they're dominant in their bachelor group. And so they'll walk over and, and like you say, nudge those bucks out of their bed. Or I've seen them even paw at them, you know, paw at their yeah. heads and they just yeah. paw them out of those beds. And those little bucks have no choice. They have to get out of those beds and give them up to the bigger bucks. Yeah, all they really have to do, I mean, they just, they pin their ears back and the little buck's like, oh crap, I'm out of here. Move it. <laughs> they know, don't they? Yeah, oh yeah. There's yeah, a pecking there's, there's order. A pecking, there's a pecking order for sure, you betcha. Yep, and so yeah. you you started off your season early and you were hunting mule deer with a buddy, right? Yeah, yeah, so my friend Pierre, Pierre Tessier, um, he's, uh, he, he actually, he's from Quebec, so that's, I don't know, French Canada, East Canada. Um, and he, with his work, he works for the government of Canada and he was able to transfer over here, uh, to Alberta. I'd never met him before, uh, before he moved here, but he transferred over here because he wanted to hunt elk and he wanted to hunt mule deer. 
And so he moved here, and this year uh, we set out and thought, man, we got to get Pierre a mule deer with his bow. He had shot one with a rifle a couple years ago, and we wanted to get him one with a bow. So we went out this year, took a week, and uh, our main main goal was to try to get him a mule deer. And those south winds did not help us out at all. Um, there was a fire hazard. Basically, all of southern Alberta ranches were um, huge ranches and grazing leases and stuff were basically shutting everybody out, saying, nope, no access. Uh, there's way too high a fire hazard. Um, and there's cactus everywhere. So you're crawling around the prairie trying to dodge cactus and the south wind. And, oh man, it was just, it was, it was a real challenge. And, the, and that heat, that, that 98 degree Fahrenheit heat, um, it was definitely a real challenge this year. The deer numbers were up. Um, from what we've seen in past years so that was really nice to see um, but there was still I mean we didn't see a shortage of deer and we saw some really good quality deer it was just a matter of having them in a stockable spot and we hunted hard we had a we had a week to hunt and we hunted hard we did I think on day six day six of day seven I think that's what it was uh Pierre finally, um, we finally got a buck to cooperate and Pierre shot him and, and long story short, this deer went for his little, his little death run. Once he had his fatal hit, he went for his death run and then he just piled up and he was sliding. It was a, it was a steep coulee, but he slid down this coulee and disappeared out of sight. And, and Pierre peeks around the corner and with an arrow knocked, assuming this deer is down, but not sure exactly where he is. And he does a big circle, big loop around and can't see his deer anywhere. So he looks all over and he's looking behind rocks and down in the crevice. And he's like, what the heck, where did this deer go? So he starts looking, he goes back and he finds a blood trail and this blood trail uh, and these slide marks slide along. And all of a sudden they just disappear into this hole. Um, so the craziest thing ever, um, this deer went down headfirst into this hole. And I don't even, honestly, I don't even know how it fit down this hole. Like the hole was probably, I don't know, maybe two feet in diameter. And this buck went straight down the hole, went headfirst into this, basically a sinkhole. And uh, he was like 10 feet down, 10, almost 12 feet down in this hole. So it took Pierre a while to find him. And then, uh, and then once I was able to get over there, um, we stood over that hole and scratching our heads like, how the heck are we going to get this deer out? Well, maybe we could lower a rope down and hook it on and pull him out. But we're, we're, we're quite a ways from the truck. I think we we're, I don't know, I think it was like three or four miles from the truck. So we were a long ways from the truck and it was in the afternoon already. And uh, we, we stood over that deer and we had that sick feeling in our stomach that it was like, I honestly don't think there's anything we can even do to get this deer out of here. And, uh, the, the sides it's, it was all sandy clay kind of thing on the sides of the, the sinkhole. So it was going to be sketchy to go down in there and we're scratching our heads going, geez, can we even get this deer? But no, we have to get this deer. I mean, we shot it. We can't just let it waste down there, but is it even physically possible? What do we do? Um, and at that point it wasn't about just, I don't know, retrieving antlers. It was like, no, we want the meat. We need the meat. We have to take this thing out of here, but how do we even get down there? So I started digging through my pack. Uh, at first, we took our, our pack frames. Uh, we both were wearing Stone Glacier packs. So we took our packs apart and strapped our pack frames together and lowered that down, thinking maybe we could somehow get that, use that like a ladder to get down in there. Um, but that didn't work. We didn't really have a great way to secure it. And 
yeah, that didn't work. So then finally I found a boulder and I had a little, some paracord in my pack. So I tied the rope around the paracord and tied some loops in it and, uh, smiled at him. I said, well, I'm going down there. If I don't ever come up, you can have my truck. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so anyway, I climbed down there, um, with a Havilon and, uh, that buck was so twisted up. It had broke, I think three legs from falling down the hole plus his neck and his antlers had, had punctured his body and they were all wrapped around his, around his rib cage. Anyway, I started skinning away. It was a bit of a hack job, but I managed to get the four quarters and back straps and everything out of there and, and cut the head off and got that out of there. So the only thing that was left down in there was, uh, was the rib cage and his hide. So we were able to get him out, able to, able to salvage the meat. It was hot. Uh, we got up just about at dark and then we had the, the three, four mile hike back, um, back to the truck and it was hot that day. So we were all out of water and we basically did that pack out. That was probably one of the worst pack outs ever. Um, cause we had to pack all the way out to the truck and carrying our camera gear and stuff. We were already 35, 40 pounds in our packs to begin with. And then we had to, to split that deer and put, put it in the packs. And some people might say, ah, half a, half a deer, that's not that much. Well, if you haven't had any water basically for the last couple hours and you got a three mile hike out in in hot weather, it was, uh, it was bad. Pierre and I, we were, we were blacking out and had to pull the truck over a couple of times on the way home because he thought he was going to be puking and I was, uh, I was blacking out. I just about hit the ditch a couple of times just on the gravel roads. I just, I mean, my eyes weren't, my eyes weren't even working. I had to blink like crazy to try to get them to work. So it was definitely taxing on the body. We lost a lot of weight that week. Um, not that we had tons to lose, but, um, we did get his deer out of there and there was no grip and grin pictures. The only pictures we have are the pack out, but it's, uh, it's memories that Pierre and I'll share for forever. And I mean, really, when it all boils down to it, we got meat out of that hunt and, uh, and we got memories and that's the good stuff. That's exactly what we went for. So it wasn't just a, another, uh, another typical mule deer hunt where it's like, Oh, driving in the truck, there's a deer. Oh, walk over there, shoot it. It was, there was none of that. It was a, it was a full on adventure and that's, that's, that's the good stuff right there. That is the good stuff. That is wild, mm. man. So that, that buck had slid off and I, I remember seeing the picture of the hole and it wasn't obvious that there was a sinkhole or even a hole there. No. It was almost all covered with grass and that blood trail must have just disappeared in there. And then that buck was just buried in there. And man, good on you for uh, problem solving, you know, not giving up and figuring out a solution to get down there and save the meat. And when it's hot like that and you're working so hard and not much water, you know, all of a sudden there isn't room for trophy pictures and they're important to remember the hunt. Um, but, but the meat and the animal and your own health definitely comes first, you know? And so like you say, um, what a, what a heck of an adventure you two had over there. And yeah, to, to be that close that, um, it does take such a toll on the body, like, uh, being without water like that, really pushing yourself in that heat and you almost get heat exhaustion when you're working that hard in that heat, which is probably what you guys were on the border of. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we had, I'm pretty sure we had, uh, a mild case of heat stroke for sure. Cause I mean, we had all the symptoms of what they say heat stroke gives you what, what happens there. But yeah, like when, when we say grip and grin pictures, like the, the trophy shots and stuff like that, it was, it wasn't that we didn't, um, it wasn't that we didn't have time to take them. 
um, we, we, I mean, we wanted to document the hunt. We wanted to take as many pictures as we could. And throughout that week, I think I took, oh, gee, I think I took 1,200 pictures throughout that week, right? So I got some really, really good images that week. I was really happy with those. I got a new camera this year, so I was playing around with that. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so we, we took lots of pictures of his hunt and took lots of pictures of packing the deer out, but we didn't get, I mean, that hole was so tight and we couldn't both get down in there and there was no way to take pictures. Right. So it was like, Oh man, well, sorry, Pierre, but there's no pictures we can even take. We talked about it for a while. There's no pictures we could even take with him with the deer's head on it. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just like, well, you're going to get a bunch of pack out pictures and that's all we can really do. So no, it was, it was, uh, it was just, it was so tight in there. And, um, when I went down in there, it was, there was no airflow down in that hole and it was super hot. I, I was wearing, uh, you know, Sitka makes, makes their merino wool shirt. I was wearing their open country shirt and merino wool. And, uh, and it's, I mean, it's thin, it's nice and breathable. It's great for early season stuff like that because it keeps the, the, the scent down too, right? But I was down there and I'm quartering this deer and I remember looking down at my elbow and I was like through that shirt, I was dripping sweat off of my elbow. Um, and it was just, holy, I'm losing moisture. I got to get, and I have no water, right? I got to get out of here. We got to, we got to get this show on the road. So it was, it was definitely a tough one. That's for sure. <laughs> I'd say that's wild. Uh, well, mm-hmm. yeah, congratulations to, to both you and Pierre. What an oh, awesome thanks. adventure you guys had. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was good. It's, uh, it's memories for, for a long time. And yeah, we finished that hunt and came home and I, uh, I didn't manage to, to kill a deer that week. I had, uh, I had my chances and I had a couple of chances at some good deer and I just, I don't know, for one, one reason or another, I didn't connect and I didn't get to bring a deer home. So that was, that was the end of that. And I had, uh, uh, I had a score to settle later, so I thought, man, if I can get down there one more time this year, I'm going to give it everything I got and and try. And I did manage to get down there later in the season. That's when when I did kill my mule deer. Um, it was actually kind of a the whole season was you can have. I mean, thinking back, you can have the best laid plans for a season, and the animals and conditions tell you basically how it's going to be. They dictate how your season's going to go. Um, I had a I had an awesome sheep hunt planned um, to the mountains with uh, with a friend of mine, uh, Nauto, and he, uh, yeah, we we planned this sheep hunt. Uh, we we went through gearless over and over, and we planned exactly how we were gonna how which drainages we were gonna hit, where we were gonna go, try to find these rams, and we hiked in. He wasn't feeling well before the trip, but then we hiked in and we hunted. I think we got one full day of hunting in. And we got back to camp and he's like, oh man, he's, I ain't feeling too great. Let's go to bed early. So anyway, we went to bed and the next morning, um, he woke up and dude, he, I, I, I thought he was going to die on the mountain. He was puking his guts out and it was not a pretty scene. Um, he was, he just, he was right out. Um, there was nothing we could do, nothing he could do. Basically our sheep hunt at that point turned to, we need to get this guy off the mountain. Um, so I mean, we packed up camp between between his sickness moments and uh, managed to get off the mountain um, that day, that afternoon. It took us almost a whole day to get off the mountain, but got off the mountain. And I mean, what do you do? We had all these plans and he was disappointed and he felt bad and I was disappointed and I felt bad for him. Um, but there was nothing we could do. So we just 
sort of those were the cards we were dealt and I basically sent him home to recover um, and he took a couple of days and he fortunately was able to recover after a couple of days but at that point it was too too late to go back in for sheep um, so I as soon as we came off the mountain I decided well I can either drive all the way home and go back to work and no thanks so I decided I'd go uh, go mule deer hunting instead so when I went sheep hunting, I thought, ah, I'm, I'm super cheap, just for the record. I'm super cheap. I don't like spending <laughs> money on stuff I don't have to. So, and fuel is one of those things. So I was going sheep hunting and I go, oh, gee, I don't, I don't, the only thing I can shoot is a mule deer on this mountain or bighorn sheep, both of which can fit in the trunk of a Corolla, right? Quartered up? Sure. So anyway, <laughs> so I drove my, I drove my Toyota Corolla. Save and gas. to go sheep hunting. Yeah, save gas. Either I can take the diesel truck and get like, I don't know, 14 miles a gallon, or I can take the Corolla and get like 45 miles a gallon. So I took the Corolla down and anyways, I finished up the sheep hunt and decided to go mule deer hunting and I boogied way over to my mule deer spot. It was like a five hour drive from, uh, from where I was sheep hunting on the way I picked up a jerry can so in the front seat of the car um beside me there I had a had a jerry can for some extra fuel to because it's a long ways I'm out in the middle of nowhere for mule deer so I did that and got to my mule deer spot set up a tent and I hunted and I hunted and I hunted I hunted I think I had three three full days that I was able to hunt and I saw some good deer I saw some bucks in the 170s uh one that was uh, probably mid 180s uh, typical and then on the very last day uh, I was getting frustrated I was like geez I suck at mule deer hunting <laughs> I'm just <laughs> hanging my head I'm like man I suck I, I need a breather so uh, I sat down and I had hunted hard I mean I was I carried my lunch I wouldn't even sit down to eat my lunch I'd be eating my lunch while I was walking and checking coolies and glassing and stuff like that and uh, finally I thought I need a breather so I sat down um, pulled out some snacks, had a, had a Snickers bar cause you're not, you, you're not you when you're hungry. And, <laughs> That's right. Uh, right. So pulled out one of those, ate that and took a couple pictures, some scenery pictures and stuff like that. And then, uh, uh, that sort of refreshed my, refreshed my brain. I popped over a ridge and I looked and as far as I could see with binoculars, like way, way out there, there was like kind of this hoodoo rock, basically a pillar of stone. And, uh, in the shade side of it, there was this, there was a deer laying there. I couldn't even tell if it was a buck. I could just see that it was a deer. So I pulled off the spotter and I cranked it up to like, I don't know, with the heat waves, I could only, only get about 45, 50 power magnification. And I was looking, I'm like, I think it's a buck. It just looks like a buck. And then he turned his head the one way and I got a little bit of a glisten in the sun of an antler. I'm like, okay, it's a buck. Good enough. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it looked like a big blocky body, but I couldn't see what he had for headgear. So I throw all my stuff in my pack and I cross this coolie and I got onto the top plateau on the other side that he was on. And I worked my way all over, all the way over. And I just peeked over the top. And as I get over the top, there was like 20 does down in the bottom, which is like, I don't know if you're ever hunting mule deer. This is, so this is like, third week of October I think it was now and when you're hunting mule deer the worst thing is too many eyeballs and there's like 20 does and fawns in front of this buck probably about 100 yards away from this buck and so I couldn't even move I was just waiting and finally he stood up and he sort of worked into his way into little this little creek in these sage flats so I dropped down uh, dropped down through a a low spot in the coulee and got down onto his level and another buck stood up and both were good bucks. The one buck was probably in the, I don't know, mid-160s, um, typical. Young deer, but really good potential. 
Um, and then the buck that I had originally seen um, turned out to be, he was a, basically a mainframe 4 by 4 um, and he had a bunch of stickers and stuff on him, and he was bladed up, and he had some good mass, and just a really good old mature deer. And he worked his way into these sage flats and was just browsing with this other buck. Uh, so I, I got down onto their level and into this little creek bottom, and I only had like, I don't know, maybe an hour, hour and a half of daylight left at this point. And the does worked out in front of them, and they were sort of following the does. And I just kept working, working, working. Finally, I, I popped over this little ridge, and uh, the one buck, he, the wind swirled at one point. It was really windy, but the wind swirled, and the, the younger buck, uh, he smelled me, and he knew something was up. And he started doing the foot stomp and the head bob and, and the ears back and looking around and trying to figure out what was going on. But probably, I don't know, he stared in my direction for probably 15 minutes, and I was laying in the sage and finally he gave up and he didn't run but he gave up waiting and he he worked his way around the big buck and went over to with the does so as they uh the does went around a little corner and there was a little bit of a wash out there and i waited for the big buck and as soon as he went around the corner um i basically dropped everything i i ripped off my bino harness and i dropped my gloves and my pack was off and i was on a full out sprint trying to cut him off and and catch up before he took off too far from that that little washout and when i popped popped my head around the corner there was does everywhere and uh all like i saw a big body i clicked on it with the rangefinder and it was 48 yards and i thought okay that'll work and i don't know which buck it is but it's one of the bucks because it's got a big body and even if even if it wasn't a buck i mean my tag is valid for bucks and does so it's not a matter of it would have been shooting a illegal deer it was it was a mule deer and it was a big body so um I I drew back and I took one step out and as I took a step out his head lifted a little bit and I could see that it was good antlers and I'm like okay it is a buck for sure put his head down and uh, none of the deer saw me at that point and I shot and when I shot um, I mean it's it's hard to it's hard to say for sure I don't have video replay but he he definitely I'm sure he ducked the string um, it was 50 yards anyways uh, I hit him in the spine and he went down in a hurry, which is, I mean, it's not great, but at the same time, you got your deer. <laughs> so as soon as he went down, I sprinted all the way up to him, and uh, I finished him off, and it, that that was real quick and, and uh, basically as ethical as you can be after a spine shot. Um, so anyway, got my, got my mule deer, and I was absolutely thrilled because I'd worked hard for that deer. I think I hunted 14 full days at that point um between because i had between i'd gone to a different area for mule deer um before the sheep hunt and tried and uh yeah 14 days basically i had hunted mule deer this year and finally in the last hour of my hunt that was my last day too um i managed to kill a really good mature deer and i'm gonna get him shoulder mounted because he means uh means a lot so get him get him mounted and put him on the wall man how cool good for you yeah you earned every inch of that buck um yeah, what a great story. Uh, just 
perseverance, keeping after him and keep mm-hmm. making plays. And you you only take what those deer will give you. And I love that that patience of sitting laying in that sagebrush with that smaller buck, knowing you're there, winded you, stomping at you, bigger bucks right there, and you held low in the sage. You didn't try to come up and get drawn or get those last few yards. You just waited there and then waited for him to all work around the corner and, and then seized your opportunity. Um, how cool is that? And I also find mule deer will jump a string on a bow. I find like maybe one in four, maybe even one in three mule deer that I shoot at jump my string, even if they have no idea you're there. Um, they'll just hear that sound and, and, uh, react to the sound, uh, even the quietest bows out there. And, um, you know, and, and, and then you don't hit them quite where you want or, or sometimes miss them all together. And definitely the spine on a, on a jumping the string, that's the best of a bad scenario. It, it did put them down quick and able to finish them off, but man, congratulations. And an awesome looking box Thanks. too. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was really cool deer. Yeah. The jump, when you say the jumping the string there, uh, I got a friend that was, was hunting mule deer this year and he was after big deer and those deer like the, the proof is in the pudding he's got this mule deer um and they ended up killing it with a with a rifle i think it was about a week later um and it was it ended up being over 200 inches same sort of area that i was hunting in and uh he had this deer at 37 yards um 34 or 37 yards anyway he had this thing and he films for a tv show and he had this thing on film he showed me the footage and he shoots. This deer has got his head down. A 200-inch deer has got his head down, and it's feeding, quartering away. And he shoots, and this deer drops so low that his arrow goes right over top, basically right where he was aiming, goes right over top and uh, sticks into the ground, and this deer runs away. And, yeah, I mean, it, it was – I forget. I think he said it was like a 204-inch deer and because uh, his buddy, his other buddy who had a rifle tag killed it a week later. And, yeah, it. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. That deer dropped it, ducked for sure. Like it was – he made a great shot, but that deer just didn't want to get killed. So, and he <laughs> had no idea he was there. He was he was head down. Uh, his head was facing away, and he was feeding. It's crazy. Those deer are very, very, very quick. They are switched on. It's just thousands mm-hmm. of years of evolution at work, uh, avoiding predators and getting out of the way. And they're used to dodging a mountain lion that's coming off the, the cliff on top of them. And so they react yeah, quick. And yeah, I've had that same thing happen. A big 200 inch deer with big fronts and I, everything was perfect and got in close and, and just to the outer reaches of my bow range. And then he got up and he fed towards me and I let him just keep coming and keep coming and 46 yards slightly quartered away and when i shot he rolled and rolled to his left and so my arrow completely missed him you know he had enough time (laughs) to get out of the way of my arrow and i've had it happen quite a few times to me on on mule deer like i say one in three or one in four will jump my string and and yeah it's a there, there's nothing more depressing than than missing a deer, but nothing, you know, it it takes you to your lowest low when you've done everything right and you finally get in range of this buck that you're after, and it it may have taken days, but it's definitely taken hours to get in range of this buck and then to have him get out of the way of your arrow and two you snuck in with him not even knowing you're there that's supposed to be the the perfect scenario you think he's not on edge he's not going to jump the string and yeah they'll just flat get out of the way of an arrow yeah 
Yeah, no, it's not. It's like it is not a good feeling when that happens. It's and sometimes I mean, sometimes depending on the deer, depending on the situation, you can sit on top of that deer and wait and wait and wait for him to stand just so he has it. So you get that shot. I mean, sometimes you'll wait three, four, five. I mean, I sat on a deer for close to six hours this year and uh, it didn't pan out. (laughs) So it's like, oh, man, I wasted like half of a day sitting on this one deer and just for him to stand up and just whip his head around and look right at you. Like he didn't know I was there before, <laughs> but yeah, they, I don't know. They're just, they're just smart. They have a sixth sense and they, they know when an arrow is coming or, or they can just, I don't know. They just sense it. Some I've, and I've had them before where the wind's perfect and they just get up and run away. And it's like, you didn't hear me. You didn't see me. You didn't smell me. Like I've been here for like 45 minutes. Like, where are you going? And they're just gone. A sixth sense, yeah. They they just get a feeling, or you can tell too when you get in close to a deer, and you may be in close to deer for uh, for an hour or more, and and you can just kind of tell when they start getting nervous. You can kind of read their body language, and sometimes for no reason they get nervous and just end up getting up and getting out of there, um, just because they can almost feel your presence. It it seems to me. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems as honestly, it seems like you can make a stock on a deer. You can know he's there. You can make a stock on a deer and you pop over the top. And if you're, if, if he's close to the top and you know, he's close to the top and it's like, okay, I just need to get over the top to get that shot. It seems as soon as you see those antler tips, he just, it's all of a sudden they get twitchy and they start to, to work their way back and forth. And it's like, ah, oh, shoot. How did, like, how does he know that I am here? There's no way. But as soon as he sees, as soon as you see those antler tips, I find it seems to be when it all goes south. Yeah, something's going to happen right then and there, yeah. isn't it? As soon as you can see the antler tips, as soon as you're in range, you know, it, it's something's going to happen there. You know, sometimes, not all the time, but a lot of times you, you just get to where you can see them and uh, they start getting nervous and all of a sudden there's going to be action. Yeah, and it might not be good. Yeah, usually it's not, right? <laughs> usually it's not, and that's why they get big. Yeah, well, and it seems like you're always coming over top a ridgeline. Like, um, you always have to expose yourself to to the animal you're after or the mule deer you're after. But it it seems like you've always got to come up over bank, even if you're approaching from below them, from the side of them, above them. It seems like you've always got to expose yourself over a ridgeline, and so getting really good at that ridgeline assault is crucial for harvesting animals. Being able to pick them out before they pick you out, coming over top of those skyline uh, scenarios. You find that too, that you really got to get good at your ridgeline assaults when you're stalking mule deer? Yeah, for sure. I learned a ton this year. Um, honestly, the doing the spot and stock thing on mule deer, I don't consider myself an expert by any means, but this year I learned a lot on how to do that um, a lot more effectively, a lot more proper. Um, I probably, I don't know, 30 bucks, 40 bucks this year where I just, I just want to see what's in that crevice. I just want to see what's in that valley. And I'd come a little bit, not that I'd stand up and walk over, but I'd come a little bit too aggressive. And rather than just my eyeballs and my nose peeking over the ridge, um, he would get my head above the ridge. So um, I don't know how many times where I'd pop over and I'd be like, oh, crap, there's a good deer. And he's looking right at me already. Um, and it's just, it's so frustrating. It's like, oh, maybe if I back off slowly, he'll think that I'm not a threat. You back off slowly and you stand there for five minutes, making sure that he can't see any part of you. 
And then you see him run up the far side, up up, up over the top. And it's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> over, right? That's so, mule deer hunting. That's the essence of it. Um, it, it is. You've got this um, this urge or this desire when you're coming up over the last little rise. For some reason, you want to hurry and see if he's there. Hurry and get the opportunity. Hurry and seize that moment. And that's that's like the wrong move to make right there. You've almost got to fight it to really come up over slow. And then like where I made a lot of my mistakes this year on Ridgeline Assaults is um, – I'd know where that animal was, where that buck was bedded, where that bull was bedded. And so I'd come over the top, and you're expecting him to be right there, but maybe they're feeding, and he's over to your left 20 yards. Mm. And and you're coming over, and you're really like hyper-focused on that spot where he should be, and you're not paying enough attention to the stuff to the left and the right, looking for other deer that weren't there. Like I had a, a bull where I came around the corner, and I knew right where the bull was, and I could just see his horns creeping on him and i didn't pay attention and there was another bull up to the left that had busted me but i noticed that's where where a lot of my shortfalls came this season was coming over the ridge line and expecting that buck to be in one spot and being too hyper focused on that spot and then you come up too high like you say and you expose your head or you come up and they end up catching you before you catch them and you blow the whole scenario up yeah, yeah, there's nothing more frustrating than that because, I mean, sometimes you have to do loops. You have to loop miles around sometimes just to get in position. And then, yeah, either you're you're super focused on one spot that they're not at, like you just said, or the other thing is – another thing you said was you come up over too fast because you just, you just want to see where he is, right? And I think it's sort of a, it's sort of a double-edged sword because if you come up really slow – I've done it lots of times before where you come really slow over the ridge and it's like, okay, is there a deer in here? Is there a deer? You take your time and you you basically just dissect that whole valley and it's like, ugh, there's no deer. What a waste of my time. And then the next one, that wrecks you for the next one because the next ridge you go to peek over, you're like, well, I mean, I just wasted like 20 minutes glassing a, a valley of no deer. I, that was a waste of time. So then you go a little bit closer and it's like, oh, there's 180 inch deer, 20 yards and he's gone now. so it's yeah you just got to take your time but you don't i don't know we don't want to waste time but we're such a i call it a fast food society we just i mean if a burger takes three minutes to get at the drive-thru we're like come on like i'm late for an appointment right so we just want to we want to get we want to find our deer we want to find it fast we we don't want to work for it and it's just it's human nature right humans are are lazy and we also want to get things fast so whatever it's, it is what it is it's so true it ruins you for the next one um so you're talking like when you're when you don't know the deer is there and you're you're going over and you're gonna glass a new drainage or a new coolie yeah, and if you're going blind yeah yeah and so you creep over and you do everything right and there's no deer in there and you could do that for two or three in a row and then like yep. you say you come over one and you it's not like you're not looking for deer. You're looking for deer, but you just kind of walk over and, and check it out a little bit too quick, and then you blow yeah. the biggest buck out of there. Like what what I get trapped into a lot of times is I'll see a spot that I want to glass the next drainage from. Like I'll see a little mm. outcropping or where it's going to reveal itself where I can glass the whole drainage. And so I keep going, okay, I, I'm just going to get there, and then I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to pick this whole thing apart instead of like looking – 
while I'm trying to get to that spot, I almost rush it a little bit, and that's where yeah. I'll blow deer out of there, you know. And I think, <laughs> God, I knew better. I should have just glassed, taken 10 minutes to glass my whole way over, and then made it to my vantage point and picked it out, because it does no good to be hunting, you know, deer that are running over the, the next ridgeline. You've already messed up that opportunity, but yeah, it's it's a live and learn. You, you keep making those mistakes, and you just try to get better at it. That's all a guy can do. Yeah, hundred percent. And like you said, there blow a deer out. The worst thing is you you blow one deer out of the valley, and it runs down the bottom of the valley, and every other deer in that valley jumps out of their bed, runs down with them, and they all filter out of there. And it's like, oh man, couldn't just like one little deer have run out? No, they all run out, and they go into the next valley, and everything in the next valley goes, hey, there's some idiot over on the other valley, and he's coming, so they're all watching the top, right? And then you're hooped. <laughs> it sure are um isn't that the truth uh yeah uh it's it's just that that game of patience and patience kills the buck and and you're right mm-hmm. we're in a fast food society where we want everything fast but you have to slow yourself down and you have um you have nothing but things to gain from from being slow and being patient as you expose yourself and as you glass new features and you want to glass them fresh. There's just nothing worse than spooking deer out before you get the chance at them, and especially a nice buck, you know, that you'd love to shoot and that you're you're working so hard to get an opportunity at, and then blow that thing out of there, and then it's pretty much starting over. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's well, it's not even a fresh start. It's like, oh, gee, you're now you're chasing now you're chasing scared deer, which which is never never a good thing. But oh well, you live and learn. And fortunately, I was able to kill kill a really good deer. Um, he's definitely my by far my biggest typical that I've ever shot. So I was pretty pretty pleased with that. And I mean, next year I'm already excited about next year. I don't know. Well, I know that you like planning way, way ahead. So I'm sure you got your whole next. Have you got all your dates figured out and everything what you're doing next year? Yeah, I mean, I'm starting to get my game plan together. We play a lot of points here in the state states oh, okay. for for yeah. different. So I know kind of where I'm at in drawing tags in in multiple different western states that hold big mule deer for uh, both in the alpine environment and then also you know some of the lower lands country and and high sagebrush and that. So yeah, I've nice. kind of got a rough game plan together of what I'd like to draw. So we'll see if the if the uh, state agencies are as kind as I hope they are and, and uh, yeah. draw some good hunts, but I'm really looking forward to it. I love getting after mule deer uh, each and every year. And this year I had a, a good, a really challenging hunt in Idaho where I didn't see many deer. I don't think I saw a buck for the, the first five days of, of traversing oh, wow. this, this uh, extreme high country where you're above 10,000 and in these Alpen basins. Oh, but man. Just really low deer numbers, and I didn't. Yeah. Uh, I scouted really hard um, in in Idaho and made two or three different scouting trips, and they just didn't pan out. I just couldn't find the numbers and the mature bucks I was looking for. But uh, finally, hmm. able to find a location, and five days in, I spotted a couple different shooters, and um, you know, moved our camp down into this drainage. I had my buddy Dan with me, and he videoed the entire hunt for me, and so we oh, uh, nice. we found this buck and bedded in a good spot and relocated him and and made it happen on the first stock down and he got up a little quicker than i wanted him to um i think i wanted to make it to the you know there was a he was almost in the wide open but they were bedded just in the shade of a couple trees and then there was a tree in between us and him that we were sneaking to and once i got to that tree it was going to be like 45 yards 
And I think he, we did this slow, uh, methodical precision stock down on them, and there was like three or four bucks there. And they'd get up and feed around, and we'd have to freeze, and you know, it took hours to get into range and just hmm. start getting close to that tree. And the big four we were after stood up, and I had one window in the trees where I was able to get a range and and uh, pull back and just hope Dan had everything in the frame, and he did. He captured it perfect and sent that arrow yeah. right through that, that little window that I had, and he had the buck right in the same window and able to make a good shot on him and, and harvest him. But, yeah, just an awesome hunt. Nice. So I, I look forward to planning next year. I should be able to draw Colorado, which is a really neat place. Right the, yeah. the peaks go above 13,000 there, and um, oh, I've, I've got one spot where it's like 30 square miles where there's not even a trail through it where i've i've never seen another hunter and i i've seen just some giant deer in there and the last year i harvested in there went 201 um it was just a great big buck and they're just the bucks you dream about in there the wide heavy extras and and uh living in that that alpine environment and unpressured you know they've kind of got a a lax attitude to them and not that a big muley is ever easy to kill um but definitely you have a lot in your favor up there it's just being able to get back in there and then survive and live with them and keep your eyes on them and then try to make you know educated intelligent uh thought out plays on them you know where you don't bust them out and and uh you you throw all your chips in and go all in and and go for a stock when the timing right and try to make it happen but um really cool country like like where goats and sheep live you know so um yeah i i should be able to draw that next year i should be guaranteed for it i thought i was going to draw it this year so uh, i'm really looking forward to getting down in there and and uh trying to make something happen on a really good buck or at least matching wits with them in there yeah yeah no that's awesome my colorado holds i mean i got a couple buddies down in colorado and some of the deer that they show pictures i was like holy those are those are and they're big body too down there. They're awesome. Giant bodies, yeah. Um, and, and they, you know, Colorado has the genetics, and they also have the the best management in place to manage for for quality deer. Um, they they keep a good eye on their deer numbers and and uh, do a good job of, of of limiting the the number of hunters, whether it's with a bow or with a rifle, to let you know and and manage each unit specifically um and and so they're able to do a great job and just grow some giants down there they're as big as they get down there and and you know in in any of these places we hunt you you have an opportunity at a big deer but colorado almost more so you know they just uh they just grow great big heavy ones down there right on yeah that sounds like sounds like a sounds like a good trip and sounds you're saying there's some areas where not a lot of hunters be in so that just means uh that means a lot of work but that also means your work should be rewarded so yeah it's it's you versus the deer you don't have the Mm -hmm. human element involved you don't got to worry about somebody busting your stock or um somebody getting to that deer first like you can you can really sit back and and think what is the best play i can make at this deer and you you may watch him for a day you may watch him for two days before ever making a play just trying to get um you know all the the different factors you know to to be in your favor as much so as they can for a high country mule deer so yeah it's a fun game Mm -hmm. to to play and it's um it's extreme gnarly country that you have to really train for and so 
that kind of keeps me training real hard uh, throughout the entire year just to make sure I'm I'm in the type of shape that it takes to get up there. And like your buddy that got sick this year, I had a buddy that he's hunted Colorado with me a couple times. And I remember this year, I mean, it was just getting into camp is a pull. You've got to climb two different 13,000 foot saddles and, and uh, to make it into this spot where we camp. And, and uh, my buddy's hunted it before, but, you know, this season he had gone through a divorce and maybe hadn't worked out as much and and the elevation got to him he got exhaustion sickness bad where you know it Hmm. it turned in real quick to a from a muley hunt to we got to get him out of here into lower elevations as he was throwing up and couldn't keep water down and couldn't keep food down and so um it is gnarly country that you you just can't take for granted you got to work really hard to hunt that place you know and and uh since i mean my buddy has hunted all the the craziest places with me and sometimes it just hits you no matter how good a shape you're in or how much you prepare and i remember like i'm headed over to the eastman's office here um on friday and gonna go mm-hmm. talk with um dan picard and then guy eastman that just got back from um Gosh, I can never remember the country, but it's one of the Tajikistan or to Tajikistan or I I know I butchered the name of that, but they just got back where they were hunting sixteen thousand feet up there for Marco Polo, and then Dan had an ibex tag and in through there, and I guess Dan. Um, I guess he got elevation sickness, which Dan is a young guy is in, yeah. in as good a shape as you can shape, be yeah. in. Yeah. He works really hard at it, but I guess he got exhaustion sickness where they actually had to move him down a couple, two, 3000 feet. And from the words, you know, straight out of Ike Eastman's mouth, you know, he was on death's door, um, you know, which is wow. really scary. But those guys had such an adventure. It's something like lost 30 pounds on the – I don't have all the details oh, yet. Like Ike just gave me like a – he just gave me a quick synopsis of the hunt and some of the stuff that went on. But these guys had a grueling hunt and then got trapped in the airport there and couldn't get home. And okay. you talk about an adventure. I can't wait to hear the whole story. But yeah, that exhaustion sickness is serious stuff. Whether it's exhaustion sickness, which I've had before, or uh, uh, elevation sickness, you know, which which can hit too. Um, and, and you know, I that exhaustion sickness I've had it like trail running before, or when I was a young kid and chasing elk one time, and I didn't really work out and wasn't in really good shape, but we did, you know, who knows how many miles that day and how much elevation chasing these elk, right. trying to shoot this bull. And I got up there and made myself sick and throwing up, and it reminded me like the old days of wrestling practice where your first day of practice, you know, you make yourself sick because you work so hard. Now, I've had that a couple times, and it's scary in the mountains, you know. You you really got to to keep an eye on on you know your your red line meter and make sure that you're not not pushing too hard or you could be in a bad situation yeah yeah no doubt yeah no it's uh you don't don't want as soon as you start puking it's like oh man well you're you're hooped for the future really because uh not your your future but the future your hunt because as soon as you throw that stuff up that's all your fuel and that's uh once you drain that out you're you're down for a couple days yeah, it's all your fuel, and then you can't keep water down, and um, yeah, you're a wreck. That's no time to be in the mountains trying to survive no. back there and trying to hunt, and it it can definitely hit each and every one of us, and just like my buddy, it hit there, and 
you know, I, I've seen it happen to a couple of my friends. And like I said, I've had it help happen to myself too. And the, you kind of get to know yourself a little bit better. And then the harder and tra- you train and the more you prepare, definitely the better your odds of, of not getting it. But um, something you got to be ready for and ready to address. And, you know, we talk so much about pushing hard in the mountains and pushing hard on our hunt, which is a, a vital part to it. But you have to know where that line is, where you got to yeah. come back and hunt another day. Like when stuff starts to go sour, that's that's not the time to keep pushing or be a tough guy. Like you've got to really evaluate the situation and and make sure you're being you're safe and cool headed because the decisions mm-hmm. you make right then and there they can determine whether you're going to make it out or not. Like that stuff can be serious life threatening stuff. It's nothing to play around with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the same. I mean, same goes for weather too, right? Like I've been sheep hunting before and it's like nah man well should we shouldn't we we should probably we should probably hunker down we should probably put a Gore-Tex on sometimes you don't want to dig in your pack for your Gore-Tex but same thing you don't put on your Gore-Tex and you get soaked and you get hypothermia you can not just end your hunt it's it's game over um so yeah sickness sickness and weather there's a lot of conditions where we like to think we're tough but at the same time we need to be (laughs) as our wives would say you need to be smarter than you are tough oh they're so right out there (laughs) they're so (laughs) right well and uh to quote you earlier in the conversation you said that uh conditions and weather dictate to the hunt and you are so right like you you make the best plans and it it's you know you have to plan for these hunts and make sure that you got your t's crossed and your i's dotted but what really dictates the hunt is the what the weather that comes in the the conditions that you're faced that's where you got to really adapt and and overcome because um they they never these hunts never go as planned you know you can lay the best plan but when you get there it's always different and it seems like it's always tougher than you expect and 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 then you have to adapt to the situation the weather you're getting you have to react to might cut down your hunting days cut down your effectiveness but you have to just work within those parameters to be as effective as you can be and then also keep a good attitude like there's nobody wants to be rained out for three four days straight and not be able to glass but those are the conditions you're faced with you you know your only decision is to pack it up and go home and give up or you know ride it out in the tent and hunt when it clears you know or you know you can try to do some still hunting through it too and and work some ridge lines but i i'm not that effective unless i can glass them up but uh it's such a good quote you had because it is it's it's all about the conditions and the weather you face during your hunting season and and being able to adapt and overcome yeah yeah for sure yeah we don't uh weather never follows our script so we sort of have to follow hers. <laughs> yeah, and, and react to it like you were stating earlier. Getting yeah. your Gore-Tex out or getting your tent up. Uh, and uh, the moment you skip one of those steps or you get lackadaisical, you know, that's when it comes back to bite you. And, I mean, it's part of the reason we all love hunting is our, our fate's in our own hands. We live such a protected life nowadays in our vehicles and to our, our houses and our shelters that have heat and running water. And, you know, you you get away from that 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 essential survival part of life but you get out there hunting and all of a sudden your decisions that you make they dictate your future and your safety and you have to make the right ones you you can't make too many mistakes out there and so then when that weather's coming in and you're reading the clouds you really have to react to it and make smart decisions you know what you know and it sounds cliche but it could be your last and especially like if you make a big mistake it could definitely be your last if you slip off a cliff or get hypothermia or push exhaustion 
sickness too far and can't call for help. Like there's a there's a bunch of scenarios there. So yeah, you definitely definitely got to play it safe. And especially you like on those sheep hunts. Those are like my high country mule deer hunts where um, yeah. the the conditions are just more extreme up there and uh, less forgiving. The country's less forgiving. Like they, it doesn't allow you to make many mistakes up there on the sheep mountain. I would imagine. No, no. Like you said, it's, I mean, it's the same kind of stuff. As soon as you get up in those elevations, the weather is totally different. Um, it's usually windier. Um, yeah, conditions just change and they're, they're just more extreme. It's, it's either hotter or it's way colder. It's way windier. Um, it's, yeah, it's, there's no, there's no real easy way of getting out of that stuff. And, and really, I mean, lots of it, you think back to the, back in the day. I mean, I didn't hunt back in the day when, when it was, I didn't sheep hunt back in the day when there was no good stuff out there. But like some of these guys were going back there, just I mean, cotton clothes and there wasn't good good materials. Nowadays, there's there's so much good stuff on the market. I mean, the merino wools for base layers that you can actually get sweaty and wet and still be insulated. Um, and then a bunch of layers. I mean, I I personally I love. Sitka gear. That's that's all I have. So all my camel. I got rid of all my other camel because it just doesn't function as good. So I mean, not to not to just totally throw a Sitka gear plug out there, but really, I I truly believe in this stuff. Um, I bought a bunch of it and it just worked flawless for me. And in the mountains, to have stuff that's breathable that you're not over, you're not overheating, but at the same time you're not freezing, having breathable stuff, moisture wicking stuff, and then having the Gore-Tex layers when you need it to keep all the junk out, but still be breathable. It's just, I couldn't even imagine like some of those guys that used to hunt and just cotton stuff. Um, those guys are tough. I mean, tip of the hat to them. I, I don't think I could survive. Well, I mean, a person could survive. You just couldn't hunt as, as hard or go as deep into the wilderness, um, without, without the good gear that we have nowadays. Oh, the the technical mountaineering gear has changed the game, and 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 like you, I I am a huge Sitka fan, and I I like how they they've kept evolving their brand and evolving their gear from you know the camo patterns to the to the fit to the um it it just seems like the their fabrics everything about their company and their their gear has gotten better as the years progress and each and every year that they come out with a new line uh, I'm impressed by it and I, I'm like you that's the only gear I'm using nowadays and I'm really happy with it and that how's that uh, that subalpine did you use any of that on uh, hunting this season yeah I used I, I I got some of that stuff this year um, I'm I'm really hoping to get into some more of that next year um, I just I didn't get a ton of it this year because um, I thought I was going to spend more time sheep hunting. Um, so I didn't, I, I don't know, I just didn't really prepare for it as much. I did get some stuff and the stuff that I got is just, I mean, their, their new Ascent stuff, it's just, it's super, super lightweight, super fast um, mobile stuff. Um, and it works great. Like the pattern is great for around here for the moose, the elk that we hunt. Um Mule deer even, uh, the, I, I used the open country for mule deer this year, but the subalpine stuff will work just as good. A lot of the sage and a lot of the, the edges of the coolies are just exactly that color. Um, so that subalpine stuff, I'm just, I'm definitely going to pick up some more of that stuff this year. Um, but they're like, those guys are, 
those guys are always thinking ahead, right? Like you get it, you get a piece and it's like, okay, well, whatever, it's just a regular pair of pants. Well, it's not a regular pair of pants because every single detail in it has been thought out. Um, the way that the contour of the legs are has been all thought out. It's all planned. Um, they're, they're going to be, I think in a month ish from now, right in about a month from now, they're, they're going to be launching their 2018 stuff. Um, and I mean, I've heard them say before that they're already working, like they're starting to work when they launch their 2018 stuff, they're already starting to work, work on their 2020 stuff. So they are way ahead of the game. It's not, they're not reactive, they're proactive, right? So they're always planning, planning ahead. And they're always, they're all ears when they hear guys say, Hey, this is, this is what kind of stuff that we want to see. They're taking that to heart. They're listening to the masses and they're, uh, basically giving us everything, everything we want. Like some of the pieces, it's just they think of everything like white tail gear, even um, fleecy white tail gear and the legs they're contoured for sitting in a tree stand. Uh, there's no other items out there that you get that don't have, that have the legs contoured to sit in a tree stand. Usually, I mean, I've done it for years sitting in a tree stand, the back of your legs, the fabric is bunching up in the back of your knees and you're pulling it out of there and it's getting uncomfortable and your legs are falling asleep because of that. But I don't know, they, they're thinking ahead and they're, given exactly what we need. So any company that's going to do that, I will definitely stick with it. Oh, me too. Well, and, um, it, it, it used to be that nobody was building hot weather gear. Like, uh, mm -hmm. I hunted Hawaii this past season and, and I always hunt these early antelope hunts, uh, early mule deer hunts, you know, where it can get really warm. And it was always tough to find that, that early season gear. And you're right, that ascent gear that they have, and then they've got, you know, it's like they're reading my mind every year they come out with this stuff. But to have that that hot weather gear that breathes really well and keeps you cool it is essential for me and my system and and what I hunt. And then they've got that new lightweight hoodie, which is just made for me. I'm always covering up my face and trying to cover up my ears and stay out of the sun because I spend so much time outside. I don't want to to fry my face and, and have to have it cut off from skin care. But they came out with yeah. that, with that lightweight hoodie. That thing is perfect for warm weather. So yeah, it, uh, um, they're definitely doing their job them. And, and, uh, you know, there's a couple other companies on the market. that are doing great too, but it, it's just nice that they're evolving their gear and improving it year to year. And they have everything from warm weather to cold weather. And I can't believe what you guys go through sitting in a tree, you know, I'm used to cold weather here in Montana, but I'm not used to sitting still all day in a tree. It, it, it amazed me at how cold you get just sitting there all day long. And and uh, again, they fit the bill with their cold weather gear and designing lines specifically for whitetail hunters that are that are sitting in a tree all day. So yeah, no, I think it's awesome, and they they just uh, they they keep amazing me. I can't wait to see what they come up with this year. Yeah, it'll be pretty exciting to see what they come out with for 2018. I know, like, the you're talking whitetails. It is – I feel like an idiot sometimes because I'm like, am I really – do I really need to take all this stuff to the tree stand? Because, um, I mean, I, I got hand warmers and I got my merino liner gloves and I got that muff that Sitka comes out with for putting your hands in and – and then I've got all their fanatic gear that I'm taking and you try not to sweat up on the way to the tree stand. And then you get up in the tree stand and it's like, oh man, it's not that cold. I'll never, I'll never need all this stuff, but you do need all of it and you need to stay warm um, up there. Cause it's, I mean, there's days I've had days this year was a little bit warmer um, in comparison to other years, but there's, there's been days where I sit, I mean, it's minus 30 Celsius, which I think minus 30 Celsius and minus 30 Fahrenheit. I think that's where they meet somewhere in around there. Anyway, um, minus 30 Celsius. 
Celsius and I've sat up there from daylight till dark and holy smokes, that is a cold, cold day. You're going through hand warmers and you're just, you're just sitting there hoping that a deer comes in so that you can shoot it and put your hands inside to warm it up. Like <laughs> it's, it's the, that's a cold day, but, uh, I, I definitely noticed a big difference, especially for bow hunting. Cause your arms and your sleeves are always, they're always bulking up, right? With, if you get too many layers um their fanatic line while it is puffy and bulky it's definitely not what it used to be because i used to layer up with i'd put all kinds of fleeces on and then i'd have a downfill and then i'd have another like those insulated coveralls and stuff by the time you couldn't even draw your bow by the time you'd be bundled all up right so to have have more effective layers and less of them is definitely by far by far the way to go so right, I I carried so much stuff to that tree day in and day out. I swear my five day backpack weighs less than my whitetail backpack does. You got your snacks and thermos of coffee, and you got all these clothes. And like I say, I'd go up in the tree with half of those clothes on. By the end of the day, I would have every piece of clothing I brought with me on to try to keep warm. It was just wild. It just amazed more. me. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that the truth? And oh, those hand warmers are just lifesavers up there, aren't they? I had a yeah. couple in my feet and uh, keeping my hands warm and yeah uh, uh, those things are joy in a tree stand yeah yeah for sure yeah no you don't want to be stuck in a tree all day without enough gear because you, you can't you just can't do it you either have to get down and go for a walk or else you have to head home you just can't do it if, if you get too cold you're done i bet it can get dangerous up in a tree stand too um you know and yeah, I, I guess there's systems you can use to climb up the tree, but it just seems like when you've got a bunch of different stands, like you've almost got to climb up safely and then hook up your tree stand harness. And I always wore a harness, but we didn't have one for going up and down the tree. You know, Clint had 20 different sets set up and, you know, I'm sure there is a system you can get for that, but that that can be downright dangerous too. You do not want to fall out of one of those trees. And uh, when you get cold throughout the day and then you have to climb down with all that gear and your backpack and all that stuff, um, you, you got to make sure you got all your stuff in order for that too, or you could be coming, come tumbling out of that tree and, and really hurt yourself that way too. Absolutely. Yeah. I know that. I mean, tree stands are no joke. We, I've climbed up enough tree stands, set up enough tree stands that a person honestly get a little complacent and it's like, ah, whatever. It's just, I mean, I set this tree stand up. I know it's safe and, but it's not necessarily whether the tree stands safe. All it takes is one piece of ice on the bottom of your boot and you skid off the side of a peg or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm going to be changing my system here this year, how I do my tree stands right now. Um, I've got each, uh, each tree is set up so that I mean, I, I don't have like a lifeline on each tree and some of the safety guys out there will be like, you idiot, you should be doing that. And yeah, I should be. Um, but I haven't in the past. So I got to do something different this year. Um, I haven't had any times where I've just about fallen out of the tree, but I don't need one of those times because all it takes is once. So I'm going to change something, whether it's, uh, whether it's using those lifelines where it's basically just a, a rope that goes from the ground up to your stand on each, on each tree stand. Um, yeah, tw 20 tree stands. I don't know. I probably have close to 20 tree stands set up around here and, uh, 20 tree stands. And if you're doing say 30 feet of rope for each tree stand, well, I mean, 20 times 30, you're looking at like 600 feet of rope. I think that works out yep, too, right? Exactly. So that's, yep. that's a lot of rope. But at the same time, if you look at it in the big picture, um, I'd rather spend, I'd rather buy 600 feet of rope and spend the time to, to hook all those lines on. Cause I mean, really when you put it down to it, how much is your safety, right? How much is your safety worth? Um, yeah. cause 
I don't know. I got I got a wife and I got three kids here at home, and they need me home every single night after I go after I go hunting. And I I mean it's it's my income that feeds the family. So if I can't even go to work because of a stupid tree stand accident, that's the last thing I need. And I'd I'd never forgive myself, right? I need to provide for my family. So it's 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 on my list of things to do. I need to do that for for next season is to get all those ropes set up. And uh, I had researched it a bunch, and it's really a simple setup where it's. I mean, you've got you've got a rope tied on at the bottom and a rope tied on at the top, and all you have to do, you basically your rope, it's just a line that goes tied on at the top, tied on at the bottom, and you hook your harness on with a with a I forget what the knot is called, but it's all over YouTube. Um, basically, YouTube's awesome for a lot of stuff, but just go on YouTube, find that knot, and you basically hook on your safety harness at the bottom, and each step you just slide that thing up your lifeline until you're up in your stand and. Uh, you're set you're not going to fall if you fall you fall three four feet and yeah you might get a black eye and you you might poke yourself a little bit with a step or you're going to get scratched but you're not going to fall and break your neck um i had a client there a couple of years ago i was guiding him for moose and he says you know he said him and his friend were hunting and they were i forget they were somewhere in this i think it was kansas and his friend had been up tons and tons of tree stands and he he didn't have a he climbed up he stepped in his tree stand and he just happened to lose his balance and he went out and the guy is uh, he's a quadriplegic and he says man he says i wish when i hit the ground he says i wish i just would have died um so you don't you don't and that he was in his mid 40s when he did that and now the guy's like 70 years old so he's been 30 years he's been a quadriplegic because he lost his balance in a tree stand so it's just not worth it right man it it isn't nope it isn't worth it you can't take chances you just gotta be safe and like you say spend the extra money and spend the extra time to to make sure you're as safe as you can be and i i felt comfortable going up and down those things and i'm sure you feel really comfortable you've been doing it since you were a kid up a million different tree stands but um uh, to to prepare and and uh to to take more caution to make sure that you come home every night it's not too much to ask and that's like like my mm-hmm. spring bear hunting is spot and stock for a lot of those black bears and for years you know i liked it that it was just me versus the bears and i didn't have to bring a pistol or you know but i've got this bigger responsibility to come home to my family and to my wife and and to provide like you say um where yeah. i've got to come home i can't i can't be taking chances and just taking my bow out there it isn't just me i'm looking out for i got to make sure that i'm around my house too so you know i've started carrying a pistol which is five extra pounds on my hip but it's, it's just a make sure that i'm ready for any scenario that that i come up against and same thing with those tree stands you know you you get comfortable and um you've been doing it for years and years but it's not it's not too much to ask to take that extra step to make sure you're being as safe as you can and really goes for all of us wherever we're hunting in the mountains storms gnarly steep country whatever it is it just isn't worth it you got to come back to hunt another day yeah yeah, hundred percent. And that cold stuff. Once you get cold, anybody knows it. When you get your hands cold, you just don't have the strength in your hands. Uh, your forearms get cold, and you lose all that strength. You can't even squeeze things properly. And yeah, coming down those those tree stand steps, that's the last thing you need is to freeze yourself up there and then come down without uh, without tons of tons of grip in your hands. 
you know, tons of grip and dexterity and feeling and all that stuff tends to go down. So, yeah, you can be the most athletic guy in the world that would never fall out of anything. But pretty soon when you're cold coming down one of those things, it wouldn't take much to, to you know, have a slip or have an accident. So, yeah, no, definitely. Guys got to keep safe. My buddy Dan always says, like, we go through these big storms or big lightning storms. And he always says, you know, no buck's worth dying for. And he's absolutely right. You know, you push everything to the limits and you're into it for an adventure. But there is no buck out there that's worth dying for. You know, if it's no. if you don't feel comfortable and it's not safe, it isn't worth going for. You know, live to hunt another day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, um, thanks a bunch, Craig, for being on. Man, I always really enjoy talking to you. Congratulations on your season and that that giant mule deer. They don't get much prettier than that thing with the stickers and the the big frame and uh, great fronts, great backs. Um, just a superb buck. Uh, I can't wait to see them out when you get it done. But uh, just an awesome mule deer and and always fun to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I mean, thank you for inviting me again to uh, to be on the on the podcast here it's great chatting with you and it seems i don't know we we don't chat tons and we live a long ways apart and honestly we've never met each other face to face but it's it's great to be able to chat with a with a like-minded person that we're sort of on this on the same page with this stuff and really uh feels like feels like i know you because we basically deal with the same struggles in the mule deer world and in the mountains and uh yeah it's great great chatting with you much appreciated really enjoyed it right on yeah kindred spirits for sure uh so no it's uh it was fun uh thanks again craig and um we'll keep in touch i want to talk to you again and good luck on your hunts for this upcoming year you bet thanks man you too okay all right guys that's a wrap um craig temple just such a great guy and and a great bow hunter i just always love our conversations and I just love the platform of this Eastman's Elevated where you can just have these authentic conversations with with like-minded individuals and and how it just it, it sparks the conversation. You start talking about one thing and then it reminds you of something else and reminds him of something else and you jump in with these these tips and tactics that that you know I know I'm learning from them and it's making me a better bow hunter to think about these things and break these things down and so you know, I I hope it's helping you guys too. As as there's just um, some great information on on hunting public land and being successful and pushing your limits. And so, um, you know, I I just keep growing at this podcast and trying to get better at delivering the information to you guys, quality guests, quality content. You know, I think. Uh, you know, and, and I like the authentic conversations, but I also like planning a little bit beforehand and, and just really thinking for over the podcast. And I'll, I'll just sit and think about it and think, you know, what's interesting to me? What's going to be interesting to you guys? And I, I try to just jot down a couple notes, not that it's rehearsed or anything, but it, it just it lets me think with uh, while I'm not on the spot of being on the podcast. And so I can have these notes of kind of interesting things that I want to touch on or ask about. And the conversation doesn't always go that way because I do fly by the seat of my pants, but it, at least it gets some, some good ideas and some good topics to touch on. And so I uh, just want to continually try to develop that and, and develop the podcast. But great conversation with Craig. He had some some super adventures this year and, and some great tips and tactics mixed in there for you guys. 
Um, thanks to the sponsor of the show today, Sick Gear. Um, so you guys heard it; it came up organically in our conversation. Uh, but just really pumped on on Sick Gear. They are working so hard to bring us hunters the best technical mountaineering gear, the lightest gear on the market, um, best fabrics, best design, best cuts. Um, I, I just every year I'm so impressed by them, and and uh, I'm using their gear almost exclusively now. Um, and just really excited. Sitka is just such a, a great company, and they're just they're not sitting back like resting on their laurels or resting on their design. They're just constantly trying to innovate the the best gear for us on the market. So just super pumped on Sitka gear. Thanks for those guys for thanks to those guys for uh, sponsoring the podcast and being part of uh, Eastman's Elevated. And uh, again, over there at Eastman's, uh, we're just plugging away. Really fun to get over there to the Christmas party and visit with everybody and catch up with everybody. Uh, I just in, enjoy the entire staff over there at Eastman's. And um, it, it was really fun to, to go to the, the Christmas party and, and uh, have those guys. You know, they just appreciate everything I do and stand behind the podcast 100%. And uh, they let me have, you know, pretty much creative free creative roam on the on the podcast or or let me come up with a, a lot of the content and guests and so um just a a great company and i'm i'm just thankful to be a part of it uh make sure to check out the the mrs sections that are going to be coming out here that are going to break down the states and and uh, break down the units and where trophies are coming from and it just helps educate us blue collar bow hunters on on which state and which units we want to apply for and and try to get in on some of these adventures out west and so um be on the lookout for that make sure you're subscribing to eastman's bow hunting journal eastman's hunting journal to get that mrs section and uh with that, yeah, just trying to get to Arizona. Um, Dan can leave Monday, so we're going to take off Monday. Today is Wednesday, trying to get out this podcast, and then I'll load another one up for next week that uh, I'll have my wife release while I'm gone. And then uh, me and Dan will do some good recording down there. You know, he's just – he's my hunting buddy. He's been on a bunch of adventures with me, and I – you know, I, I just have a lot of fun having conversations about hunting with Dan. And so I'm coming up with a couple ideas that we can do down there. And then, of course, going to cover this coos hunt and try to do some live updates and, and uh, uh, on the Instagram story and, and, and try to try to just have fun and, and go immerse myself in that desert landscape. I'm really looking forward to it. So it sounds like uh, Coulter's not able to make it this year. He's just got that new job, and I I knew he was kind of touch and go on it, but he's not able to make it. We're going to miss him over there this year, but uh, hopefully he can make up for it next year, uh, getting together on a on a hunt with us or a hunt with me, and, and uh, whether it's you know, up, up in Alaska or whether it's uh, down in Coos country or mule deer hunting in Nevada, whatever it is, hopefully we can make something work out. And so wish Coulter all the best at that new position and new job. And, and uh, you know, I know he's he's focused on a lot, uh, focused on family quite a bit right now. So um, no big deal. Me and Dan will shoot down there and gosh, we're going to, you know, with 24 hour drive time, but uh, we're going to have eight, nine days to hunt over there. So uh, be able to cut our legs loose and cover that, that desert landscape and try to find some coups. Hopefully we'll be able to pick up a javelina tag. Uh, I saw they had some leftovers there. And so I just got to go stop by the Arizona Game and Fish office. I don't, 
I don't know why they won't sell you anything over the internet or don't on their website. They really got to get with the times on that, that you have to show up in person to, to get a tag um, or mail in. Um, who mails in nowadays? Our, uh, we're hi-fi Wi-Fi, right? We're in the, the new age where everything's done off the internet, but Arizona is still um, holding to their guns where you have to mail in. Uh, anyways, no big deal. We're going to head down, get our tags, and go have some fun. Uh, I'm just really thankful that Arizona has a January season down there where we can extend our hunting and prove a little bit. I love all the glassing, too. Um, I, I'm going to bring my 10x42s. I really wish I had a pair of 15s or 15x56s. Or um, Man, glass is just so expensive. I Coulter had a pair of 15s one time down there, 15s. Um, and they were really good glass, too. And uh, I remember the first time I used him, I he let me set him up on his tripod, and I was looking over this mountain we call Buck Mountain. And sure enough, I just picked out this this great big, you know, 100-plus-inch cooster over there. The first time looking through those 15s, you can just see, like, another level back. But the problem is, is you can't just use 15s because, you know, up close, you have such a small field of view. So it's almost like you need a pair of 10s around your neck and then a pair of 15s in your pack and then your spot scope to judge or you know and i i know i saw that um a lot of people are using those are they koas or kawas or i don't even know how to pronounce it but those they're it's like two two spotting scopes put together that would be pretty cool for glassing distant terrain but um anyways i've always made do with my 10 by 42s and then a, a spotting scope and so that's what i got down there this time but boy some 15s would be nice i don't know i might have to sell some of my gear sell some of my stuff um and and try to pick up a pair of 15s for next year or a bigger pair of binos but anyways that's nor here nor there uh that's the podcast eastman elevated um thanks again you guys for all the support we're growing this podcast or well, we seem to, you know, the the numbers are growing on the downloads and the plays of the podcast, and um, that makes Eastman's happy, makes me happy. Uh, I'm just glad this has caught on, um, and you guys enjoy listening to it uh, each and every week, and and uh, just gonna continually work hard to get you guys good content, um, you know, and and then just try to try to live the lifestyle myself, and um, you know, I know I've got this podcast to get out every week, but I gotta make sure I'm getting in my runs and my training, and I'm. I'm putting all the effort uh, that that's necessary for these hunts and and planning and um, I mean this year was just a, a crazy fun year. I got a lot of time to hunt with buddies and a lot of time to hunt for myself and put a couple films together. I think that Idaho deer hunt. Um, I got word that that thing's going to come out in January, which is a quick turnaround on that. So really excited to to share that with you guys and and I want to try to capture a couple more next year and and uh, just just continually chase this passion of mine and have passion for it uh, be driven all the time to be working harder be in better shape be a better shot and just be a better western hunter i just i love this this challenge and and this adventure that's western hunting and i just want to continue to work hard at it so um but that's it from here that's the episode headed off to az uh catch the podcast next week and then look for those live updates and uh, we'll check in with you guys soon